Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. And just because the world has become this sort of like closed dystopian existence, it that is evil winning out. And the good is usually the person that's fighting against that. So I've always viewed it to be much more of a warning, right? And something that we we certainly don't want to manifest into the world. And I think it's a shame that there's not enough uh, sci-fi that that is the opposite of that. You know, I think there's a term solar punk, which is not popular. But if you Google search it, you'll see there's a future we could envision that's actually pretty exciting. And I'd like to represent more of that, I think. And the open, you know, way of building and thinking is much more of that. And I think there's a possibility that that could swallow up everything over time because it provides much more opportunity for abundance and it actually changes the lives of people and it, and it supports the well-being of people. Look Up listeners, welcome back to another episode of the Look Up podcast. I'm your host, Mark Weinstein. And as always, leading off with a huge thank you for listening, reading the newsletter, sharing this with your friends, dropping your questions to mark at thelookuppodcast.com, and just generally being such an awesome community of listeners and contributors. Today's episode, I invited my friend Ryan Gill on the podcast. Ryan is one, an incredible human, just a forward thinker and a builder uh, in the Web3 space. Uh, He's been ahead of the curve on many uh, new trends. And so I've been trying to get him on for some time. He's just been head down building his new company, Crucible, where he's the CEO and Crucible is building uh, a universal open infrastructure that joins the worlds and economies of game developers, web developers, and artists without the walled garden or closed platform effects that have crippled our current social media and technology business models. Crucible is building an open SDK for the metaverse, the open metaverse. Um, it's a form of self-sovereign identity. Ryan and I get deeper onto all of those subjects. What is the open metaverse? What is self-sovereign identity? What is Web3? Uh, We talk about his journey as an entrepreneur. We talk about why we believe that the momentum of closed uh, social platforms is moving towards more open concepts owned by the end users. And Ryan's got the experience to kind of back it all up. So he's currently the CEO and co-founder of Crucible, which is the company that I was just describing, and the chair of the open meta DAO, which is basically going to be the foundation that governs the crucible network of which crucible, the company will just be a small part. And a DAO is a distributed autonomous organization. We get into that in the episode. And finally, Ryan is a venture partner at outlier Ventures, the uh, venture fund that seeded crucible Uh, disclaimer. I'm also an investor in crucible, and this is not Uh, in any way, shape, or form investment advice, nor does anything said in this episode constitute investment advice. So just want to CYA, CMA on that one. Uh, Previously, Ryan uh, worked uh, as the uh, head of innovation, I believe was the title, 
um, or no, he was an entrepreneur in residence for Peter H. Diamandis, PhD Ventures. Peter Diamandis is the creator of the X Prize. He's also a futurist and bold thinker. Uh, and prior to that, Ryan was on the venture team over at Rock Nation. He's got experience spanning the media and entertainment space, the cryptocurrency and Web3 industry. And as you'll see, he's just extremely thoughtful, experienced, uh, and awesome human. So that's really it for me. Uh, I really hope that y'all are enjoying the latest episodes that are coming your way and the newsletter. If you have any feedback for me, please just let me know. I'm always available. Uh, I'm looking for more guests to come on. So if you know anyone that's building uh, at the convergence of uh, the real and digital, who's building in kind of the Web3 space, or who is thinking deeply about consciousness and the mental health epidemic facing our society, um, send them my way. Looking for great people. Okay. Without anything else from me, this is Ryan Gill. Ryan Gill, thanks for joining me on the Look Up podcast. Calling all the way from the other side of the Atlantic Ocean in one of my favorite cities in the world. It's good to have you on here, sir. Yeah, brother. Um, the last good memory I have in Amsterdam uh, with nice weather and a uh, open economy was when you were here. Yeah, we had a beautiful little little bike ride around. Uh, Around, I guess, the north side of the city. I'm not super familiar, but yeah, we got a couple bikes. We rode a couple hours north through Nord. Ran into Jason Silva and his family. Mm -hmm. It was a nice uh, little serendipitous day. It was super fun. It was so beautiful. And I think we decided that we were going to throw a music festival there one day when things open up. So I think we might have to. It was a, it was a pack. Yeah. So all my all my friends here now, the people that. Like I've really gotten to know the most, do all the festivals and manage all the DJs. There we go. So we have the in right away for the Amsterdam Music Festival. I figured that there was already 10, 15, 20 events there because it was just such a perfect space. It even had like the the little sections siloed off where you could see specific stages being built and things like that. So it was cool. Oh, yeah. The, the Netherlands has more music festivals per capita than any country in the world they know how to party so those those parks are designed specifically for music festivals and they have uh what's called ade here the amsterdam dance event uh in october which is basically the sundance film festival but for dance music so my whole canal here becomes like just parties in every single pub and every single hotel i'm actually planning an event that we're going to do this year that's awesome. I can't wait. I'm I'm going to have to come if they open up the borders. I uh yeah, the the sites looked perfect for festivals, so I'm not surprised that they they build it out for that already. But we're not here to talk about festivals today, at least not in the uh the physical world. Ryan for for my listeners, you guys know that, you know, I'm fascinated by um this concept of the metaverse and convergence technology, the convergence between our digital and real lives and Ryan um, and I have been talking about this for a number of years, and his views have certainly informed kind of my thinking on on these concepts. And that's you know that's one of the reasons why we've been saying for some time that Ryan should come on the show because he's just usually a few steps ahead of the rest of us when it comes to these, I guess, futurist 
uh, sci-fi, but like bridging to our current reality thinking. So uh, Ryan, again, thanks for coming on the show, man. And I'm sure that you're going to have a lot of um, strong insights to share about these things. But let's start super high level because, um, you know, I've, I've had a couple of folks talk about the metaverse before, but, you know, these, these episodes get lost in a mix of other concepts. So like the metaverse. Well, first, I want to say that it's it's great to be here. I, I remember watching you get this started. Yeah. Uh, we've been friends for a long time, and it's been a long journey from, I think, the Chinese spot when I was re- working at Rock Nation. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, when we, we came, we were both in, the, uh, in a bit of a rut then, and we shared a beer and I think some fried rice and, uh, and then got catapulted into the, the blockchain thing that took place with the, full, with the first uh, bull market. And a lot of the ecosystem in LA and really, I think have just kind of been, uh, on similar paths, certainly different, uh, places around the world, but you know, the, the, the friendship has, has grown and I've really appreciated what you've done with, uh, your spotlight. You know, I think you've been really selfless with it, uh, and, and our values align in, in ways that I think is really the core of why we are friends and why through all these different market cycles, we can kind of remain on the same page. So uh, it's an honor to be here. And uh, I really love what you do. Respect, man. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm going to gonna have to cut that one and, and, and share it as a, as a promotion for, for the episode and for uh, the rest well, of the I podcast. Could be, I could be genuine. I know. You know? I could be genuine because we really are friends and it's, uh, it's, it's just been fun to watch you do this. Thank you. So, Let's let's go to kind of the topic at hand, or at least where we're going to begin, and I'm sure we'll end up in some unknown territory. But um, for the listeners, you know, what is the metaverse? And then I guess more specifically, what is the open metaverse? Re- really simply, I, I just define the metaverse as the third act of the internet, right? So mm-hmm. we hear a lot of people talk about Web3. Um, Web3 is metaverse one. Right. So as we pass through this sort of threshold from Web 2 to Web 3, we're also beginning to start to see Metaverse 1. Traditionally, this is a science fiction term that's defined in, in, you know, dystopian science fiction about sort of this like collection of virtual physical spaces all sort of uh, tied together as one experience in which you can kind of navigate through them all. Um, and it, it really shaped up to become kind of a three-dimensional internet that was made up of a lot of virtual reality, augmented reality. Uh, but now practically what we're seeing is it, it truly is just from standing into, in 2020, 2021, looking forward for the next decade, that is the metaverse, right? Like our, our experience with technology, the way that we use the internet, this is the word and the term that, that encompasses all of that. So. Uh, as a lot of us, you know, feel intuitively and a lot of the guests like Tristan on, on your podcast have really exposed, you know, our friend Brittany Kaiser as well. Um, we're passing a point at which, uh, it's becoming toxic for these centralized companies, uh, and these giant servers to collect and own all of this. And certainly where we go over the next 10 years with brain computer interfacing and eye tracking. Um, it's just too much for any company or any sort of cabal of companies to own. And so why 
I put open on the beginning of that metaverse is that we have all kinds of open source, open standard technology that can give people their own ownership in their little slice of this and what they want to build in it. And, you know, from, from my perspective, data is people in disguise. And, and if we really like believe that, then it's important that people, users, creators all have sovereignty and they own their own data. So when you say, when you say data is people in disguise, can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Cause that's an interesting concept. <clears throat> well, you know, we're kind of rushing towards this like data driven world. There was this soundbite uh, that, you know, the value of data surpassed the value of oil mm. a couple of years ago. I think Brittany was probably the one that popularized that uh, in the great hack. And it's true, you know, that that is a fact. So, you know, the internet runs off of uh, data. Each person creates their exhaust trail of data. But the sort of the model of capitalism as it, as it exists today is very sort of data driven on advertising. And um, exponentially, we're growing towards a future where that data is training models that actually do a lot of the work that's needed in the world better than human beings. So it is ironic to imagine that our use of all of these platforms that creates all of this data is producing the thing that is training those uh, algorithms to outperform us with a lot of things. And it's really just human activity that produces the, the data, you know, and it's, and it's incredibly valuable. So it's, it's beneficial to start to think of data as people, you know, in disguise and to value it the same way and to um, put the same rights, I think, on it. Yeah, I think that's, that's an interesting analogy. And I mean, to your point about Tr Tristan's never been on the show, but he has this one um, analogy. Well, it should. Yeah. One, one day, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's got a lot on his plate, but he makes this analogy about like whale meat, you know, like whales are worth more to the capitalist kind of interests, cut up, you know, processed, sliced for parts, skins, oils, and meat than they are living in the ocean, at least from like a for-profit standpoint. And in the same way, you know, we humans are worth more cut up for our data trails, uh, regardless of the way that that data is collected, um, impacts our, our, tr our lives, our mental health, our culture, our politics, et cetera. So I agree that, you know, thinking about it that way, it's like thinking about a, a, a steak as a cow might help you to um, become vegetarian uh, if you if you're around enough animals um, which I'm not I'm, I'm weak on that and I but. think I think that's another that's another way of saying the commodification of of people right in the way that data is used as a, as a model for advertising back to them um, you know when when you say like whale meat or uh, a living animal like a cow is really a burger or a steak. That's the productization of it, right? That's the, the, the commodity of what that thing is. Um, and I think that's a great analogy. So how do we go from this metaverse as it exists today with, you know, even, even in virtual worlds, right? We have Epic Games who just raised a huge round, you know, the creators of, of Fortnite. Um, we have Roblox, another, you know, highly valued, I think, public company now. Um, just, just went public. public. Yeah. These are like multi, you know, 
eight, eight, 11 figure valuations, right? Like tens of billions of dollars at least. Um, I think Epic maybe was like over a hundred billion. So there's obviously a lot of value in these companies that are already creating uh, what I guess would be the closed metaverse if we were thinking, you know, um, opposites, open versus closed. But how do you envision we move from these siloed, um, large central databases essentially um, towards kind of open collective information flow that is monetized differently? Well, it's interesting because, you know, I spent the last two years building this company and talking to everyone. And I, and I can tell you just, just even today, I've had two of the biggest companies uh, in the world uh, approach me to tell me their plans about the open metaverse and ones that would mm-hmm. be shocking to most people. Um, and I think it's because like standing in, in, in the sort of like the era that we live in now and thinking natively to the era that we live in now, these things, Web3, decentralization, Bitcoin, they're actually more rational at this point. They're, they're more of like a logical decision to, to come to, right? And this is, this is the power of like a Michael Saylor, you know, somebody who comes from that world who just does the calculations on the effectiveness of, of Bitcoin and comes to the rational decision that it makes sense to really put a lot of your, your balance sheet in Bitcoin. Um, I think... You know, a combination of, of that being the reality of where we live today and also this this vision of the metaverse that everybody kind of shares through sci-fi um, being completely dependent on interoperability, which which really is is quite the opposite of this sort of proprietary closed you know world. That what do you, what do you mean by interoperability? So, um, you and I being able to interoperate no matter what platform. Mm-hmm. or what game or what world like you and I can move and navigate through all of those and bring our property and ourselves with with us no matter what it is we're not gated into all these different emails and passwords yeah and i that that makes sense so an example of that would be although it's it's within underneath the facebook umbrella would be like the connective tissue between a whatsapp and an instagram and facebook messenger that's being created. But I guess more for the open metaverse, it would be like if your Twitter, you know, you, the con- direct connections between Twitter and Facebook. Yeah. So we'll get into a little bit more detail on like what I'm designing, but it's an inversion principle where the end user has full control and everything needs to authenticate with you as opposed to where we are today, which is you're jumping through the hoops of each platform that you want to use. And you're signing everything away to them. Mm-hmm. I interrupted to ask about interoperability. Um, so moving from this closed kind of eco, these closed siloed ecosystems towards an open metaverse, interoperability is one of the, was one of the foundations. And you mentioned um, users permissioning and and owning their value and information. How how does that transition kind of take place? I think that's what you were explaining. Yeah. So I think the line of thought was that even really, really close minded companies um, are creating R&D type experiments to understand decentralization and specifically with the context of the metaverse arriving to a logical decision that this needs to be open. Right. It just just naturally. And I think 
it is really uh, probably a lot of cognitive dissonance for them because as an organization with shareholder value and in the sort of like very zero sum philosophy of, of capitalism, it's going to be hard to reckon with that because you're thinking I got to lock people in. I got to create my moats. Um, but then you go down this path of like the vision of what's possible and it kind of, it kind of goes the other way a lot um, for us to really reach what we all paint in our mind to be this metaverse. It can't just be a bunch of closed siloed closed, you know, walled gardens. That's, that's the exact opposite. So um, I, I find in, in most of the conversations I have, most people are like partially through the paradigm shift. They're not all the way there. Um, you know, certainly in our web three communities, people are way down that rabbit hole um, and even want to burn down the old system uh, in a lot of cases. But, but even, even the more established tech companies have their person in there who, whose mandate it is to, to explore this innovation and they're arriving to these conclusions. And I think NFTs has really accelerated that uh, as well. Um, but it's, you mentioned Epic and I think, you know, not enough people uh, realize how much Epic is, is actually taking the steps to not be a closed metaverse. Um, you know, I, I have the privilege of having been close to a lot of Tim Sweeney's speaking. Uh, he actually sort of opened up for us at a, an event called Into the Metaverse uh, in the beginning of this year. And his, his talk was why the metaverse should be open. Hmm. You know, and then we we followed him with the blueprints for the open metaverse, and that's that's what we've designed. But you know, you could go back all the way to his SIGGRAPH talk um, on SoundCloud, and he talks about all of the mm. ways that this needs to be open standards. It needs to be standardized, you know, uh, in order for it to really be possible. Um, so they did raise a billion dollars, and certainly, you know, Epic's going to want to prefer their technology, the Unreal Engine. But, but, uh, you know, when they do things like sue Apple and Google, it's actually because these fang companies, these big tech companies have kind of like optimized for a world that has changed very quickly, right? They were the startups, uh, moving fast and breaking things, but they're certainly not that anymore. They're the biggest companies that have ever existed. And I, sometimes I think maybe we forget that and they're fully optimized for the world that was. And we just went through a year that rapidly changed uh, everything. And a, and a company like Epic, with their lead in gaming and, you know, their uh, certainly their lead in vision for things like the metaverse, um, they're more optimized for the world that, that is now what could be. Uh, what we're doing with Crucible is actually optimizing for the future. And so, like, even the, even the more innovative big companies that are, really kind of pushing the boundaries they're approaching us to try to you know figure out what what comes next with all this sort of web3 um, stuff so it's it's an interesting kind of battle but but truly I think there's a a war of paradigms between open and closed that's taking place right now and I don't think the closed uh, philosophy will win and I hope it doesn't that's a great explanation I have a couple of follow-ups to that one so the first um I want to know why. I want to know what, why do you think um, open will win out over closed? And then the second is with regards to folks like Tim Sweeney, you know, who are moving Epic more towards open. And these two might be related actually, but like, is it, is it a capitalist instinct 
um, that he believes that the most value creation for Epic will come through opening up Fortnite and their other properties um, rather than keeping them as closed ecosystems? Or is he also just, is he also an idealist who believes in more of like a utopian vision for the metaverse? And so I think that's kind of like a two-parter where it's like Tim Sweeney specifically, why does he think that the open metaverse is necessary? And then for your take as to why open is going to win out over closed, because I feel, you know, I, I tend to lean more towards like the dystopian future when I think and write, um, you know, I, I see kind of like the the power structures that exist winning out. So I love to hear the other side of that. <clears throat> yeah. So um, I, I won't sit here and speak for Tim Sweeney, but based off of my impression, uh, he is not, he is not uh, entirely motivated by money. Mm-hmm. Um, he is motivated, he is motivated by, by something much broader of, of sort of just straight up. He's like a nerd that loves what he does and he's building something that, you know, is, is started out very core to gaming and, and is now really inspired by the science fiction that we all love, but he does it more, you know, in a way that is meritocracy, right? Like he believes in a, in an open, fair environment for, for competition. And right now with the platform fees, there's certainly not fair competition, you know, and um, I think what he wants to do is create a much more, you know, even playing field for the developer ecosystem. And then based off of merit, he wants the Unreal Engine to win because he's going to build something that's better, you know, but he doesn't want to stop other. He His actions in a lot of ways are for the benefit of companies outside of Epic and developers that that might actually be building with unity for example um and then for me personally i I think i think we're at a peak uh of centralization anything past this point becomes entirely toxic I, i think you could argue it is toxic now but i think if we keep going down that direction it's like you know fully toxic fully damaging like you know everything starts to to fall apart um and um, and the open opportunity is just uh, it's m- more natural to, you know, to, to the well-being of people. And so, you know, while we all might re- be really excited to, like, talk about the dystopian sci-fi, uh, you know, from a storytelling perspective or like it's fun to kind of go see those movies <laughs> like none of us want to live in that. Right. Like no, absolutely not. just because we might like to go like read those books and, 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 and watch the movies. Like there's not a single person that really wants to go live in that or raise their, their family in that. Um, and, you know, I, I have a core belief that th- that dystopian sci-fi, it was never a prediction. It was a warning. You know, um, if you go back and you really read it, it's, it's not glorified, right? It's, there's a, there's a subtext there of good versus evil. And just because the world has become this sort of like closed dystopian um, existence, it, that is evil winning out. And, and the good is usually the, the person that's fighting against that. So I've always viewed it to be much more of a warning, right? And something that we, we certainly don't want to manifest into the world. And I think it's a shame that there's not enough uh, sci-fi that that is the opposite of that you know i think there's a term solar punk which is not popular but if you google search it you'll see 
there's a there's a future we could envision that's actually pretty exciting, you know. Um, and I, I'd like to represent more of that, I think. And the open, you know, way of building and 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 thinking is much more of that. And I think there's a possibility that that could swallow up everything over time because it provides much more opportunity for abundance and it actually changes the lives of people and it, and it supports the well-being of people. Well, I've, I've never heard the word solar punk, so I'm definitely going to look that up and I'd be curious to know kind of what that, you know, more utopian rather than dystopian view of, of the metaverse looks like. I think for me, I, um, I definitely, that's the dystopian version is certainly not the future that I want to live in or my children or, or grandchildren. I'm just kind of more along the lines of like, at least my current line of thinking is like Charlie Munger, right? Like show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcome. And all of this still exists on the substrate of capitalism as we know it today, which is, you know, maximizing returns to monopoly power. Um, and, you know, the state is meant to be a check on, on monopoly power. And I've, you know, spoken about Tim Wu on the show before and some of what he's written. And it doesn't seem like they've stepped into that role of late. You know, it's as long as prices have gone down, um, the increase, the decrease in competition doesn't seem to bother um, our kind of like previous few administrations in terms of anti-competitive behavior by some of these platforms. And so if the incentive is profit, profit maximization, then, you know, and I know you get this a lot in your share, in your investor meetings. So I feel like you've, you've had this conversation quite a bit, but um, if the incentive is profit maximization, then it seems as though profit maximization is profit is maximized in closed ecosystems um, where people think zero sum. So how do we break through that? towards towards a more open model um and do those two concepts align does profit maximization and incentivizing you know the bottom line align with an open metaverse or do we need to become more like tim sweeney in that we're not purely motivated by financial outcomes i mean i think there's always going to be the aspect that like maximizing profit through extraction is, is toxic and damaging at a certain point mm -hmm. like there's no way around that right because if you prioritize shareholder value at, at, at sort of uh, over anything else, then you're willing to to rationalize and justify a lot of bad things that could happen, right? And it might not be a direct uh, action, but it could certainly be a sort of second order effect, third order effect. Uh, you know, I think <clears throat> I think about it a lot. I think we probably have to leave some money on the table. In, in the future in order for a sort of like more well-balanced um, type of triple bottom line where we're actually taking into account, you know, the, the people and the environment and, and the planet. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't, you know, I don't know. I think right now the sort of the problem statement to me is really kind of broken incentives in a, in a very centralized system that benefits a few and that few continues to benefit themselves based off of extracting um, like incredible amounts of value at the expense of everybody else, you know? And so to me, the, the, the antidote to that seems to, to certainly be more of the decentralization, you know, that, that you and I are passionate about helping support and build 
but it's not utopian. Um, I, I think if things are split down the middle, we should work to try to lean it towards a little better, right? I, I don't think that a utopian perfect kind of like environment is possible. Um, but I do think we could do a hell of a lot better than we're doing now. I agree. So how do we get there? And, and, you know, maybe this dovetails into, into crucible and what you're building a little bit, but how do we, how do we build the open metaverse or how do we kind of slightly skew the pendulum away from centralization and towards decentralization away from closed systems and towards open systems? <clears throat> well, you know, I think, um, I think it'll become a lot more evident how important gaming is to our future. I think it's, it's, you know, one of the more influential things that will kind of shape the way that we live, uh, over the next 10 years. Um, the metaverse is kind of a way of, a way of saying that, but you know, we're, we're going to stop scrolling on the internet on screens and we're going to like embody it, you know, as avatars, we're already doing that because we've been thrown inside locked in for a year, but this was happening anyways. Um, it's just happened quicker because no one could get on with normal life. We were all thrown into the internet. So I think what that did was one show how much our worldview is affected by the algorithms that these companies control. And two is start to imagine what living in these virtual environments really starts to look like beyond just the taboo of, Oh, I don't want to meet my, boyfriend or girlfriend on a dating app, you know, cause like that wasn't that long ago that it was like, it was like a weird concept mm -hmm. to meet someone online and, and really have a real relationship. Uh, you know, the last year, tell me anyone that you didn't spend more time with online than in, in re the real world. And it's just become normalized. So I think what we did in the last year is go through a really accelerated normalization of the metaverse. Mm -hmm. So you got, you know, Zoom, you got Clubhouse, the way you stay connected with friends and family, the way a lot of people kept their relationships going was, was this, right? And so now when things do open back up, we'll look at this as an extension to the real world as opposed to something that competes with it, you know? And I think that was probably an important shift to go through, but it really pointed to how sort of vulnerable the individual is when it comes to all these platforms. Um, and so I, I think that that's what kind of will spur where I'm picking things up and moving things more into sort of a, a self-sovereign identity, you know, and we're taking self-sovereign identity into the gaming space because again, gaming is influential for the way we're, we're going to live. Um, so we're the first company to ever kind of bring this open source standard, this self-sovereign identity into the game engine technology like Unity and Unreal. The question that's coming to mind is like, is what is self-sovereign identity? But I wanted to also kind of drive a little bit elsewhere, but it's okay. What, what's self-sovereign identity? Yeah. So, I mean, one of my favorite things about Web3 is it's it's technology that reached a point of philosophy. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And and not, not that that never existed before. I imagine every new wave of technology started with philosophy. But in our experience in life, for for our generation... This is the first time I think we're really doing that at scale, which is what is money? What is value now? Uh, what is art right with NFTs um, with Dow soon? We're going to start to ask what is governance? What is what are, what is organization? Right. Ethereum was very much an organizing uh, principle. And now you just asked me, what is self-sovereign identity? And so that begs the question, what is identity? Like, how do we prove 
our identity in the real world. And it's through credentials, right? And so other than just being two human beings, two, two homo sapiens on earth that have a relationship physically with one another and, and recognizing one another, in societies, we prove our identity through credentials, which is anchored right to a government, right? So you have your ID, your passport, these government credentials that allow you to uh, prove your identity. And there's, you know, there's many, many, many billions of people on earth that don't have that. Um, it's not just the unbanked. It's also the people that don't even have their own identity. And, and then now on the internet, we have our email credentials, right? Now we prove our identity online, largely through our email. Pretty much every service that you log into, it's, it's your email and your password. Um, so with self-sovereign identity is, is creating a credential that's verifiable that you own, right? That it's not tied to an email or tech company and it's not tied to a government. It's fully sovereign to yourself. And that's done the same way that Bitcoin is on a blockchain. That's really valuable. Um, super, super just like simple description. Appreciate that. Yeah. And I guess the importance is therefore, you know, when you own your identity, you can't be deplatformed, whether it be by a government or by a company. Um, you know, especially as a creator these days when, you know, so much income is tied to that, to that identity. Um, YouTubers that get kicked off of YouTube, for example, who are making their living off of it or influencers who get kicked off of Instagram or have post deleted, you know, even companies that are advertising on some of these platforms who just, you know, you hear horror stories about Facebook ad accounts getting closed down during peak season and, you know, without explanation, right? And so the ability to own your own ideas. Yeah, I, I think it's really important. I think it's really important that we look both ways with that, right? Because we we can say that as as like, you know, the influencer who um, the platform didn't like what they were saying and they got deplatformed. But we also had the U.S. president get deplatformed for things that a lot of people agree with, right? So it, it go it goes both ways. But the point is that these tech companies have gotten so big that they're public squares while being private companies. And that's an issue, right? These algorithms are not determined by the people. They're determined by the people that wrote the, the algorithms in the, in the company. And we've now invested so many, so much of our life into the internet. I mean, there's millions, maybe billions of people that make their living based off of the algorithm behind that platform. Um, again, it's just how, how, how intrusive is that, right? Like at what point do you not want to give the agency of your life to another company or another platform. Yeah, it's extremely intrusive. And I think that people do theoretically want to, you know, own their own identity. What are, what are some of the challenges of getting there? You know, how do we get from where we are today, where most credentialing is, you know, for the, for the majority of us in, in the U S probably at this point, you know, you're using a Gmail account. Um, I would imagine. I actually haven't looked at the stats. My parents still use AOL.com accounts, so I'm sure there's plenty of people out there that are using those. Um, but how do we get from kind of these identities stored on centralized servers to our own individual ownership? And why, and why is identity kind of the, the core of this, right? Why is that like the first building? <clears throat> the challenge that, yeah, the, 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 the challenge posed is the same, I think across everything, which is, I, I use the term web three. Some people don't like it. I think it's great. I think it encompasses the sort of like, and you've said it a couple of times. So let's talk of, like web one was what, 
Web yeah. two and I, what's Web okay. three? So I have a I have a probably very different uh, definition than than most people, and I don't know. I'm sure I'm sure some of your audience will get techni- technically sort of like um, critical on this, but I, I think of it as like in storytelling, you get three acts, mm-hmm. right? So not to say that Web three is the final act of the story, but we had the first one that was dial up, um, and really the internet was about the potential of networking and the and and it being for the end user, right? You go back go back and read papers from Web one era like the nineties when we were born and it's like the internet is for the MDA baby. You know? <laughs> yeah. Whatever. When, when we, when we grew up, um, but like it was for the internet is for the end user. Then we had the dot com pull things into more of a business model. Right. And since then the internet's been for the shareholder, right. It's not been for the end user. Um, so we had this whole second act, which brought, you know, all the crazy innovation of from, you know, companies and payments and businesses online to, you know, the, the big sort of interface moment of the app store, mm-hmm. you know, with, with, with Apple. And, um, so for interface moments, you look at like AOL and dial up brought web one to the people. It gave them an interface to use it. Right. Uh, you could argue the app store would be that for, for web two web three has failed so far at taking the complexity of the products to a simple market and making an interface. That's what, that's what we're focused on doing is being the sort of interface moment for that. What, what the web three community has done very well is take a complex product and give it to a complex market. People that enjoy that complexity, people that actually get off on it, right? Yeah. That, like people that love how complex it is. Um, and like, look, you and I spend all of our time doing this. Like, I know for sure that both of us reach points where we're even confused what the hell we're talking about because it re- really is that complex, right? Like when you really dive into the perimeters of this thing, it's mental models layered on top of each other. Hmm. And you have to, you have to get deep on a lot of that to even understand what you're talking about. Um, so I, I think the challenge is taking this complex product and set of products and making it something that's, available for a simple market, which is really scale, which is mainstream, you know, and it's my belief that like gaming is the sort of the unlock for that. Because if you play a lot of games, like League of Legends is incredibly complex, you know, from, from its interface and from the way that it's played, but it's, it's driven by legacy and story. It's driven by character, right? So people don't really perceive that to be that complex. And there's been this catch 22. If you take a complex product like decentralization and you simplify it, maybe it's not as effective, you know? So we have a whole wave of companies that tried to do, you know, important blockchain things, but you simplify it too much and it, it, it doesn't even do what it promises anymore, you know? Um, so it's, it's kind of my thesis that if we take these complex products and primitives and design them like a game, you know, more people might use them. Yeah. And I think, I think that's really important because, you know, when I think about, you know, web three as the, as the web of value, right? Like web two was kind of this information, um, information or maybe even web one was information flow, but we never really figured out how to kind of move P2P value until Bitcoin, um, which solved kind of the Byzantine generals problem. I was like the first to do so. And, you know, that's cool. But then we now see with, you know, owning your own wallet and hardware and, you know, horror stories about private keys and things like that being lost. 
you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not convinced that everybody wants to be their own bank, even though they can be now their own bank. And I've had my own, you know, experience of losing a private key and, and how frightening that can be. So, you know, I think being able to make it user friendly, um, and secure in a way that we've grown accustomed to in web two, uh, is also extremely important. And I know that you're thinking about that as well. Well, there's going to be the trade-off of convenience. I, I don't know that there's really a solve for that. Um, when you become a sovereign individual, you have the agency, but it's also your responsibility. There's no one else to go like run to. Um, and I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know that everybody is built that way um, or, or wants that. Um, but I know that I know that enough of us do to make it worthwhile. I feel like the it's it's like you said, right? Like folks in Web three who try to simplify too much kind of give up the sovereignty, right? If you try to make it too convenient, the sovereignty disappears. You, do you believe those are on the opposite end of the opposite end of the spectrum, or is there going to be some kind of like um, I'm using my hands right now, like I'm showing them on a line, but then maybe if you go into like the third dimension above, there's like some some point at which they meet where convenience and sovereignty are are equivalent. I feel like that's like the holy grail of of this work is to make being a self-sovereign individual as convenient as it is to kind of like Google hold your ID for you. Yeah. So actually, it's unfortunately, it's kind of the opposite where there is a trifecta called Zuko's Triangle mm -hmm. and um, uh, tri sorry, Trilemma. Um, uh, one of the trilemmas is like good, good, fast, cheap pick two, mm -hmm. you know, that, that, that saying that, you know, usually agencies <laughs> will, uh, will send to you. Um, Zuko's triangle is, uh, decentralized, secure, and human meaningful. Mm -hmm. And then you have to pick two. So the belief has been, you can be decentralized and secure, but then you're going to lose it being, uh, relevant for human beings. Which is which is another way of saying convenient. Um, you can have human meaningfulness and security, but then you're giving up on decentralization, right? Like uh, EOS or something. Um, or you can have uh, what did I miss? You can have human meaningfulness and decentralization, but then it's vulnerable, hmm. right? Um, so th this has been an issue in in sort of like the more technical communities uh, for a long time. And, you know, we've, we kind of worked around it a bit and, and solved it with, with the design that we have. But, um, you know, certainly you're going to give up more of one thing as you go into a certain direction. And I, I don't know that there's ever going to be a complete fix for that. You know, when you when you take ownership of everything and you have agency on it, if you lose it, like, who are you going to go to? Mm -hmm. You know, the, to, to a certain extent, that's that's part of it. Yeah, I think I think eventually, you know, we're going we might have to have like trusted i guess there's um you know new new technologies like multi-party computation that are trying to solve for this you know there's private key you know fracturing i guess with multi-sig wallets where you can have multiple individuals kind of coalesce around one wallet um there's there's attempts for sure i mean i've used as someone who's who's been on a couple of multi-sigs now for projects like there's a long way to go in terms of making that um human meaningful <laughs> definitely i mean i'll say one thing i do believe in is is the uh, ingenuity of people and entrepreneurship and when there's problems uh people will solve them mm -hmm. 
you know, and they'll probably create a great business around it. So I just kind of have the faith in, in, in that in general. And, um, you know, what we're talking about is network architecture. And so that generally is pretty hard to make relevant for people, but we're trying to do it our, our best because of the sort of economic incentive of, of tokens. Um, like no one would really give a shit about these primitives and protocols if it wasn't for tokens. Yeah. Um, well, which is why people from web, web one laugh, right? SMTP, HTTP, yeah. like who cared about that stuff? Now you got the same thing around these like consensus protocols and even smart contracts, right? And we got people arguing about that from a, a really profit driven place. So it's, it's an interesting kind of dilemma there, uh, I think, and a bit of a catch 22 in, in general. And so do we try to make the network architecture relevant to people or do we just build great things on top of it? and abstract it away. Uh, you know, I, I certainly think the latter. And so you are building a great thing. So Crucible is focused on self-sovereign identity um, for the open metaverse. Can you explain in a little bit more detail, like what, what the product vision is? Yeah, the product vision is what we call an agent. Um, and the agent exists as a mobile app, a browser extension, and an overlay inside a game or a virtual world. And the agent is the same design across those three things. And you can kind of think of it as like a personal headquarters. So you create one identity. And on top of that, you have as many personas as you want to. Mm -hmm. And each of those personas is represented as a different avatar. So you're customizing all your different avatars however you want to. You're bringing in your game avatars. And you're making a, a persona for each of them, you know. And... Technically, what that is, is a did decentralized identifier as your ID. So that's Mark Weinstein as your did. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, you're layering these verifiable credentials on top of that. And we don't want to prescribe how people even do it. You know, I'm even talking to countries like, uh, you know, Estonia and Dubai about how, uh, like, how could a persona actually be your e-residency as well? You know, I think I'm personally a multinational person now. I just got, you know, my visa in the Netherlands here. I'm getting one in the UK this week and I'm an American citizen. Thank you. Um, so I, I see the future to be a lot more of that, you know, and uh, it's also great because small nations have a real opportunity to attract innovation right now by doing that. If you create an e-residency and you go through digital sort of transformation and create these sort of digital citizen type uh, products, you're going to attract really great people right now um you're also gonna you know i think bring your economy back quicker so these sandbox nation states is kind of how i think of it um if you had this this personal headquarters that you know is anchored by your actual true identity and a credential to prove it and then all the different personas that you play out in your life you know so gaming is one of them sure digital citizens another one but you know dj uh you know collector artist fashion designer anonymous you know, twitter um, troll well not anonymous as, as well yeah a, a completely anonymous avatar that through zero knowledge proofs can you know move around the way it needs to um but is fully accountable to to the actions uh of doing things to abuse people or to to do illegal things you know that that's also been a dilemma is you know anonymity with accountability has been pretty difficult. Huh. That's something that we've we've made possible. Um, and then each of these, you know, personas now has its privacy settings. 
where you can control how much of, you know, your identifying information is out there, uh, who could look you up, all these types of things. And, and then each persona is a passwordless OAuth for exactly how to log in and out and manage the accounts of whatever has dropped the SDK in. You know, so in this case, it's games. So if a game developer drops the SDK in, now this is, this is the login with OAuth, you know, uh, where it's, it's directly, uh, authenticating from your credential, you know, that, that you have your, your agency over. And then you get the agent, which is voice video text chat, wallet management layer for fiat and crypto. Um, you know, all of your contacts, which you own, it's, it's all completely, uh, encrypted and peer to peer. So when you use our product, you own everything. You don't really, you know, we don't have a server that's collecting data. We don't own the identity. Um, and we're, we're willing to white label it for, for anyone that wants to integrate with it. And essentially it becomes an on-ramp for the open metaverse because now you have everybody on an interoperable standard where they're logging in and out and they're carrying their lives with them you know, everywhere they go. Super cool. And do you envision this, um, do you envision this working for more than just, you know, humans? Do you envision this maybe, you know, different programs having their own identity, right? Because programs will start to take on an intelligence of their own that's beyond the, I guess, responsibility of the creator at a certain point. Um, and also objects, right, should have their own identifiers or maybe, are you, are you thinking about that more broadly or are you thinking that right now, certainly right now focusing 100% on humans, but then maybe moving beyond that? Well, I think it's, it's, it's certainly applicable to anything. Um, but I, I think we want to optimize for people. Um, we have a process called proof of humanity that proves you're a human. So even if you're anonymous as an avatar, people should still know there is a human behind it because, you know, we're not far off from, you know, sort of <clears throat> environments populated by virtual beings that run on GPT-3 or whatever, you know, kind of AI, uh, that, that gets better with that stuff. So we have proof of autonomy as well. So proof of humanity and proof of autonomy, uh, as kind of set protocols for, for being able to verify those things. But I think our, our company is really leaning much more towards the ethical side of all this and, you know, how we can create tools to actually help, help people's, uh, well-being. And actually, you know, give them tools to even earn uh, based off their activity uh, in the metaverse, the things that they build, the things they contribute, because um, there's trillions of dollars of value that will be created. Yeah. Uh, there already has been in the tech world, and it's going to dwarf that over the next 10 years. And, and you know, it's a great opportunity to, to sort of like, um, I don't know, the word redistribute, it triggers people, but, but it really is. It's, this is an opportunity to distribute back to, to the people who really produce the value and they can accrue it, you know, if, if there's a way to track that. Yeah. And that was where I wanted to go next. I mean, we only have a few minutes left, but you know, you, you are structuring Crucible as a DAO, right? So can you, we've had, I've had Jake Bruckman on the show in the past. He spoke about DAOs, but can you define a DAO, a distributed autonomous organization? Yeah, so uh, Crucible is the founding member of the Open Meta DAO, um, and it's a way of of the community driving this together. So a DAO is kind of a creature in cyberspace where it's made up of members, and they can all kind of be a part of decision making together. Um, so it has to sort of lean towards more nonprofit, uh, you know, and it, and it can manage governance where a group of people can be. Um, 
driving a community can be driving, you know, the decisions for that community. And in this case, you know, the way that the open metaverse uh, begins to kind of take shape and take form is a deeply human thing that has a lot of ethical questions ahead. And also uh, it, it's really an ecosystem driven thing. So rather than go, you know, I, I did diligence with a lot of the really big gaming funds and um, most of the venture world is not fully through this paradigm shift yet. You know, they, they, I think intellectually align with it, but the values don't. And so, you know, being a part of the NFT community for so long, I brought this sort of NFT metaverse discussion to, to an app called Clubhouse, where, you know, we really saw a lot of the community drive all of that. And there were some great lessons there. I really want to harness that because um, it will go away. You know, this this NFT current state bubble and the, and the Clubhouse hype of the lockdown, it will go away. And I want to harness this community and, and drive it into a DAO, something that's much more sustainable. So I've been, you know, working on that nonstop for the past month. Uh, we're wildly oversubscribed just on the interest of it and uh, look to kind of close that first round here um, from people who just really genuinely believe long term in this, you know, and um, mm -hmm. not only just believe in it, but roll their sleeves up and are ready to get to work with. Well, us. I think that's the beautiful thing about DAOs is that you kind of have this distribution of value capture among all these different role players and each DAO can be programmed to have its own almost, um, you know, admin roles, but like more, more than admin roles, like people that just do different things, step up. There's treasury run, you know, grants to community members that work on marketing that are voted on by the DAO. And of course, you know, it has the same, they, they do have the same issues of governance that, um, we struggle with in democratic nations, right? With low voter, low voter, they can have and tend to have low voter turnout, um, you know, low participation rates. Uh, but these are just really fascinating experiments. And, you know, I think it is for, for a project like yours that is focused on building an open metaverse, you know, you need an open org, um, in order to do so. Cause, because the current frame for, you know, corporation foundation, even like the idea of like a B Corp, which is focused on, you know, the triple bottom line, as you said, or all stakeholders, including the environment. As someone who's worked in, in that kind of area for a bit, it's, it's, it's massively flawed. I think we're, we, we are at the forefront in kind of this web three movement of like new org development. What, um, what are some lessons that you've learned, maybe hard lessons, um, or even a lesson that you've learned trying to build an open metaverse, an open org, um, but doing so through within the current system, within the current kind of frame of zero sum capitalism, let's call it, or um, socialism for the rich. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, part of the beauty of the DAO is we can move to a positive sum. You know, my personality is just more towards a positive sum. Um, and I think with something that is such a blue ocean, we don't have to think so zero sum. There's so much surface area here for us to grow. And like every single tech company in the world is thinking about this. And most of them have fallen behind our community that is building the web three tech, you know, and that, that is the position that we're in now. Um, and I say that with all humility and I take a responsibility with that, but like 
every single company in the world that you've heard of that's in gaming and tech, I'm having the discussions with them, mm-hmm. you know, and, and certainly they've fallen behind with the expertise of this stuff and they're open, you know, to, to wanting to, um, find help. You know, certainly some of these are ex- expeditions of fishing and trying to get ideas, but, but there's, there is a spectrum of companies that like genuinely really understand that this is important. And, th- and those are the people that will make up this DAO. You know, this, this DAO will be a sort of like cultural engine of people that do share that vision. And, you know, being a part of it as a member and a token holder will give you a voice at the table uh, to make decisions with us collectively. Um, so I think a lot about Bucky Fuller's quote about, you know, not, not going into the system and changing it, but building something that over time makes it obsolete. And uh, I, I think that's what we're doing, you know, and I, and I do think the old mindset is obsoleting itself uh, faster than maybe it even realizes. And I can tell you that with conviction because in the past year, the discussions I'm having are night and day different. Mm, that's so great to hear. <laughs> I mean, it's so great to hear because I, I tend to, you know, I tend to um, fall into skepticism about, you know, about um, just the ability of, of systems to change. But I, I like that Buck, Buckminster well, Fuller quote. I, I also think, yeah, I think I'm fortunate too with gaming because like, gaming's fun. Mm-hmm. Right, like people just like gaming. It's a fun thing. It's an exciting thing. It taps back into your childhood. It taps back into what you do when you're not working, what you what you do when you're just a person hanging with friends, right? So I, I think we've maybe found this like little pocket here where people are willing to think more like the individual that like gets back to their their childhood who just wants to like live in Ready Player One but do it in a cool way and it's really happening. And like, I get that side of the people at at the companies. And certainly I think that's probably making a difference than if we were just talking about enterprise software, you know, or supply chain or, (laughs) uh, or God forbid voting, right? Like these things are going to take much longer. Um, blockchain based voting is, uh, it's a ways away, but, um, yeah, but with ga- but with gaming, I think we have our beachhead. Yeah, and I mean, and and more and more, everything in life looks like a game, right? Like you can just view everything in life as a game. Each individual thing, we play the money game, we play the health game, we play the friends game, we play the relationship game, and when we think about it like that, it can it can make life a lot more fun. Yeah, we think about win states. We think about win st- win states, loss states. We think about how to create checkpoints and milestones along the way. Um, this is a podcast, so I'll recommend the indoctrination of the open metaverse. Three books. One is Who Owns the Future mm-hmm. by Jerome Lanier. Uh, two is The Sovereign Individual. And three is a book that's exactly about what you just said, which is called Gamer Theory. Um, and it's really kind of anthropological, philosophical look at game spaces and how we look at the world in our lives like games. But there's one thing I did want to ask while it's fresh in my mind, because the conversation we had leading up to this, you said something that really stuck with me, you know, and this is less about the metaverse and more about you as an individual and an entrepreneur. You said that had you not gone through the kind of previous um, crypto, you know, mania, the ICO mania in 2017, you know, and, and 20, early 2018 that we were both, you know, participants in. Um, and had not gone through some, some entrepreneurial challenges, um, at that time that you would be in a much different place right now. Um, 
probably a much worse off place because you'd be getting caught up in a lot of the mistakes that were made then during this current cycle. Uh, I just thought that was really interesting. I didn't know if you wanted to elaborate on that for the listeners because it's just, it's such a powerful lesson, especially those of you that are, that are building. Yeah. I would just make, I would make many different decisions. Um, you know, even in the last month I identified pitfalls that would have killed us, not just the worst place. We probably would have failed. Um, because I had every major celebrity coming to me to do NFT strategy. Uh, I got thrown back on this track of being like thought leader and, um, like great for the ego. Sure. Like it's exciting when, you know, your, your kind of favorite artists, musicians, creators are like reaching out to you and in your inbox, but like, but I, I, I'm focused on building what I'm building. And so. Uh, that's probably where the, the, the time and energy and focus is better spent. Um, and then just to go like qu- quick backstory on me is I, I dropped out of college and wrote down that like my 20s would, th- set, would set up my 30s. And by 30, I wanted to be in build mode. So I spent that 10 years in L.A. just trying everything. And so I, I thrust myself out of my comfort zone into the top food chain of Hollywood uh, you know, a lot of the sort of streetwear, sneakerhead world, the media world, the startup venture capital world. I was at Rock Nation. I worked with big thought leaders like Peter Diamandis. Um, and I was even on the track for like the Forbes 30 under 30 type stuff. And like every time that uh, I felt like I was going in a direction where I was just doing it for, for the ego of the accolades and the sort of external validation of the thing. Um it, it it always began to fall apart there, you know, and and I think in some ways I made poor decisions, and in other ways I had to learn certain lessons. But I'd say most of that eight to ten years is pretty traumatic. Uh, I know you could relate to a lot of that kind of experience as well. And if I didn't go through it, you know, now now I exist sort of in this mindset that I'm like, that's my edge, you know, like that's my edge now. Th- those things that were so difficult to go through which I kind of hate remembering or even thinking back on. I'm st- I still, I'm still owed so much money, you know? Hmm. Uh, and, and I still sort of deal with the, the more like PTSD of some of the people I worked with and, and all that stuff. But, but that's, that's my edge that sharpens my heuristics and that, that determines why I make decisions the way that I do now. It's a great lesson for folks that are listening to kind of key in on if, if nothing else, um, you know, if nothing else, it's just uh, in the moment of time, it, it feels it could feel horrible, uh, but ultimately, that experience is is what differentiates us. That those trials and tribulations. Um, I want to, uh, and I'll, I'll also I'll also add one thing because I, I think it is beneficial for maybe for people listening is that you know if your values align in the thing that you're doing, you truly believe in it. Um, like in my case, I, I worked a total of like eight straight years in general and two very focused years with this company where it felt like nothing was happening. Like no one was getting it. Like it wasn't working. I questioned what I was doing. I questioned if I even understand what I was doing. Um, It felt like chasing. It felt like pursuing. And I personally hate that feeling. But when your values align with it and you really kind of believe in what you're doing, then you keep going. And and I can say now, you know, eight years later, career wise and two and a half years later, 
with this specific company, like we've reached an inflection point in where I can, I can specifically feel the momentum that's been building both from the lessons and the specific meetings. And it's all coming back around again. You know, there's like a gravitational force now where I'm, we're being pursued and, but it takes a fucking long time sometimes, you know? No. So like if, if what you're doing, you believe in, you have a true North for it and it feels like it's not working. Uh, just keep going. Don't, don't, don't give up on it because what you're doing is quietly and deceptively building growth and momentum for the time that it will meet, you know? Um, and, uh, that's something that I would tell myself both two years ago, both five years ago, and even eight years ago. I was, I was going to ask if there was anything you wanted to say to the listeners to kind of end the, end the show, but I think that you just kind of nailed it. You did nail it, not kind of. So, um, I'm going to end it there. Ryan, thanks for coming on, man. Long time, long time in the making and didn't disappoint. It was, uh, as expected, it was an awesome episode. I really enjoyed it. And I know that the listeners will get thanks a great deal of value me, out of it. Of course. Now you get to go enjoy the so. rest of the evening uh, in Amsterdam. Yeah, I guess I'll just, I'll drop the handles. It's uh, crucible.network, mm -hmm. um, at crucible network on Twitter, uh, crucible on LinkedIn. Um, I'm Ryan at crucible.network. And if you like what I've been saying and you feel, uh, it resonates with you, uh, go to t.me slash open metaverse. Come join our telegram group. Um, I think you'll feel the community right away. It's really kind of a special one. We break way outside of just crypto. There's a lot of the heads of major tech companies, gaming companies founders of nft platforms artists big the biggest nft artists in the world um people from hollywood people from fashion a lot of djs uh you know and i i'm not going to drop names yet but like i said if we do this again i'll be able to kind of get more specific with the people who are becoming a part of this story but um if you share this vision you got a seat at the table so just you know come pull up awesome man thank you 